0: And welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. The nights are drawing in, Christmas swiftly approaches, and our minds turn towards caroling. But not quite yet. So sit yourself down, cradle a warm cup of tea, slip on your slippers, and whack up the volume to settle in for another hour of friendly chat. In this episode we hear the ever-dulcet tones of Captain Nicholas Samuel, William Himes, and Matt Woods. Nick joins us for today's interview as we unpack his life, music and calling. We're also honoured that Bill Himes took time on his recent trip to the UK to divulge some details about his somewhat undiscovered early composition, Battles. Stranded on the arid island that experiences not just the current autumnal feeling, but all four seasons each week is Central Territorial Staff Songster leader Matt Woods. Now, it's time to natter with Nick. Thank you, Nick, for joining us once again on Fully Scored. Avid listeners who will remember your voice from your excellent analysis of your own work, Gift of Love, a while back now in episode 28. How have you been keeping
1: since then? Doing very well, thanks, Matthew. Yes, keeping quite busy with core ministry here and one or two other things on the side with, uh, for example, playing with the Canadian Staff Band as well. So, yeah, doing well. Yes, thank you.
0: Fantastic. And for those that don't know, you are the currently the Corps Officer at London Citadel mm. in Canada. Uh, but before we discuss the current, I think it would be nice to jump back into the past and map out your journey to where you find yourself now. But what was it that inspired you to become a musician?
1: I would have to say that it's a big family influence. Um, I grew up in a family where both my parents were involved in music leadership at the Corps, uh, as a child my mum was the sing company leader and later the songster leader and my dad was the deputy bandmaster for a while and divisional youth bandmaster. Um but even for family beyond that, um my grandparents on my dad's side were both Salvationist musicians as well. In fact, both of them served in the their national service as military musicians. And so the uh, famous story goes of my grandma learnt to drive as an ambulance driver because she was a xylophonist in the military band. And uh, so there's a lot of musicians on that side of the family. And then on my mum's side as well, my grandfather was a very good musician and he was a Salvation Army bandmaster for quite a while and he went into the contesting world as a conductor and cornet player as well. So with many cousins involved in contesting and army music, uh, I would dare to say that it was somewhat inevitable, but it was more to do with it was all just part of the family. It's just what we did. Xilophonist, what a word. A, I don't
0: think we've ever had that word on Fully Skilled before. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal. So other than those family influences, were there any other people that had key influences on your early development as a musician and a Christian?
1: Um, Yeah, as a musician, I would say that there were core members that I watched as adults as I was growing up um, and who encouraged me and influenced me along the way. Um, People like the late retired bandmaster Gordon Hughes and uh, the retired wife of band leader Ken Ellison. That was just a couple of names who were key influences as well as many other people. Uh, At the core who would speak into your life And part of the beauty of Salvation Army music Is that these people are not just a musical influence But they're also a spiritual influence As they not only talk about the music But they want to know that you're interested in Jesus too And uh, just talk about everyday life And how a life of faith works out for us and how we live that way.
0: Was there a particular moment in your life that you knew you wanted to pursue music further? Or was that a more gradual discovery?
1: I would say it was always a thing that I wanted to pursue. Um, Initially, coming from where I was in the northwest of England, typically there wasn't a lot of music work to be found other than being a teacher. And so in the initial stages of going through school, as much as I hated school, I'd resigned myself to the idea that eventually to be in the music field, i would probably have to teach music. Um, but thankfully, by the time I got to university, um, I was starting to have different ideas and realise that I'm not sure I really want to be in a classroom every day. And certainly understanding the British context of school music is very much classroom based I'm not sure whether I can do that. Maybe the peripatetic route. We'll see how it goes. Um. So while I was at university, I was kind of fishing around different places, trying to see if there was a Salvation Army music department somewhere that was looking for someone to fill a gap. And so I was asking lots of questions around. And it just so happened to be that around the time I was graduating from the University of Salford with my music degree, that the advert popped into The Salvationist as they were looking for two sub-editors for the editorial team. And I thought, hey, don't know much about editorial, but it's the music department, let's give it a go see what happens. So it was very much an intent to go into something music-related and actually at that time certainly music ministry-related, but for a long time I really didn't know what. I was just looking to find what it was going to be.
0: And talking about music ministry, a way that you were able to do that (laughs) was uh, in the International Staff Band as a percussionist. Can you tell us a little bit about that appointment and what it was like?
1: Yeah, that was a very exciting time in life. Um, So in September 2001, you'll have heard not long ago in a previous episode of Fully Scored that Dean Jones and myself started work on September the 10th, Uh, the day before 9-11, and uh, as two new sub-editors to the team, alongside at the time Paul Sharman and uh, Lisa Hooper. And so we joined that team. It was all very exciting. And it was the following September that uh, there was a vacancy in the percussion section for the International Staff Band. And as a desk neighbour to the band secretary, I uh, said to Kevin, how how does this work, what do I do? He said, oh, just write me a note and we'll put you into the audition process with everybody else and we'll see how it goes. So I auditioned and uh, was very thankful and honoured to be appointed to the band in September 2002 and enjoyed six wonderful years of great opportunities of music ministry.
0: So a slight sidestep now, but for several years you were the YP band leader at Enfield Citadel. How did your nurturing as a young musician help you to then nourish the next generation?
1: That's an excellent question, Matthew. I became the YP band leader at Enfield at a very exciting time for a certain group of young people there because as I arrived uh, at the core, uh, Gary Ambrose had been the YP band leader and he decided that uh, it was time to pass on the baton, Literally. And so it fell to me to take on that responsibility. And there was a group of six young uh, teen boys who, for most of them, they had family members in the senior band. And they were incredibly keen and enthusiastic young people. And so it wasn't a case if I was t- taking on a group where I had to whip them into shape and force them to do things by any means. These were really excited people who showed up every Monday night to rehearsal, waiting to find out what we're going to do next. And so it was really quite exciting. And for me, it was more about the ministry of how do I encourage these young people to take this ministry um, with an ownership So that as they move into the senior band, they recognise the privilege of ministry through music in that way. And that it's not just about we show up on a Saturday night somewhere, do a concert, and then if I can be bothered, I'll be there Sunday. But it really is about the whole thing of the music ministry uh, to whoever is there. But the key part of that as a core music section is that we are part of our core and not just the big gigs.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for sharing those memories. And we'll come back to that uh, influence of young people in a little bit. But I'd like to now speak about your composition. Many will know you as a composer. But when did you first start to find out that that was something you enjoyed?
1: I would say in my childhood to early teens, I spent a lot of time just experimenting, trying to write notes on paper from stuff that I'd remembered hearing or playing. And really enjoyed the process of doing that, and uh, so I started to take it a bit more seriously and played around with the idea of arranging. And uh, there were a couple of occasions where one of those older people from my home core would ask me to do something. For example, the band and songsters once did a local radio recording. It, it was a very odd occasion. It turned out to be that he, a harvest thing for Radio Liverpool and because it was a harvest recording of a church service they insisted that it was recorded in the middle of a field in Liverpool somewhere. (laughs) So quite an unusual setting. Wow. Anyway, all (laughs) of that to tell you that um the songsters were taking part and so the retired bandmaster came to me and said, Do you think you could arrange the piano part for a brass quintet for the backing? And so okay, let's give this a go. And it seemed to work. And so I was encouraged by people along the way as we did that. And then through school music and uh, music lessons with my granddad and then into university as well, had the opportunity to study further and took it quite seriously as a composing and arranging thing and really enjoyed doing that. And along that same kind of journey, uh, had a couple of people who asked me to write some songs for different occasions and I would work with a guy called Rob Little who will be known to many of you um, as a lyricist and we wrote a few things together and that was, that was a good part of a journey and a great learning experience to do those things. And did your work as a
0: sub-editor, did that help uh, inform you writing or did that uh, open your eyes in perhaps a different way than you had been writing before at all?
1: Yes it was hugely formative uh, because during my time just prior to that as a student at Salford I had the privilege of studying under the likes of uh, Professor Peter Graham for arranging and composition and so I picked up some of his stuff and certainly with the playing that we did in university bands but coming into editorial gave me the opportunity to not just look at the score on paper of the likes of Peter Graham and people like that who were writing a lot for us at the time but the editorial process demanded that you were examining every single note on that page and part of my process for that was asking why is that note there and that's the kind of stuff that I've taken into my arranging and composing where if I'm going to write a note on the page my first question is why that note and why in that place on the score whether it's to do with the sound concept I'm looking to create or whether it's the whatever inversion of the chord that fits. or Yeah, it's part of that process of learning from other people. And so the time spent in depth in other people's band scores and vocal scores was absolutely invaluable.
0: Now, here's a quick fact for you. Uh, the first piece that I ever played in the waifu band back in Norwich Citadel, and I think the first piece I ever played in any ensemble, uh, was your Unity series march, Grounded Firm. Wow. Um, I'm not sure how I remember that and not what I had for breakfast, but uh, thank you for scaring the life out of me with that second It line. Oh, I'm you're there. welcome. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and, and actually, lots of your music is accessible for younger people, and several of your pieces have been published in First Things First series. Do you enjoy the challenge of writing music that is accessible for smaller groups or younger people? Or is that just something that naturally you've been gifted at? Uh,
1: No, I enjoy the challenge. And the reason behind enjoying that challenge is that I am a huge proponent of functional music for music ministry. And so there's there's a recognition that... Not every player is as capable as somebody else in the same ensemble, never mind in a different band. And so making something accessible to a group is really what I aim for so that it can be used. Otherwise, we end up with a whole catalogue of music that nobody can play because it's just way too hard. And so making it functional and usable, that's what I aim for is there a
0: composition that you're most proud of or that means a lot to you personally?
1: Yeah, I would say that one of the formative pieces in my writing was one uh, that we talked about a few episodes ago that was Gift of Love, Uh, purely because of what I was trying to create in there and the way that the music has since been used in different parts of the world as people have picked up on that, because most of the songs within there are internationally known, and so people have been able to pick up on the Jesus story contained within. Uh, Perhaps more recently, I've done a couple of items for the Canadian staff band. One was for the CSB50 event in 2019, which was called Legacy of Faith, and um, in there, I tried to create some kind of picture painting of the story of the band. But it was all based around the idea of Hebrews 11, that by faith, such a body had done this because they have been available to God. And so the outcome of that uh, piece with the idea of in his time, he makes all things possible in his time, takes you then into Hebrews 12, where it talks about okay, so now you're surrounded by all these cloud of witnesses, what are you going to do about it? And so that's the challenge of Legacy of Faith.
0: Thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, actually, you're talking about Legacy of Faith, a terrific piece and a terrific (laughs) link into my next question. I believe about 15 years ago, you were called to officership, leadership within the Salvation Mm. Army. Can you tell us a little bit about that calling and... uh, When you felt you knew that that was the way that God was taking you in your life?
1: Certainly. Officership was one of those things that, like many people, there was always something in the back of my mind, Um, but I wasn't ready to explore that journey just at that time. And thankfully, we all recognize that God has His own timing, and so He will get it done in his time, and he takes us on a journey to get there. So part of my journey is, uh, I w- <laughs> in fact, I would even dare to say that through childhood, there was uh, it was well known that I had every intention of being a Salvation Army officer at some point as a child. And then uh, perhaps as I grew up and got more involved in the music side of things, I went in a different direction. But knowing that there was always that thing in the background that, hey, maybe it's one of those things... I need to revisit, let's see one day, and kind of put it off for a long time. And so God took me on this journey through music editorial and all the process of the ministries that I got involved, both with the staff sections and through Enfield Corps. And I would say that it was during my time in editorial that... Part of the journey was seeing fellow, oh, now fellow officer colleagues uh, who had gone before me who had had such a, at least in my observation, a fabulous life of ministry. And for a while I was kind of thinking it would have to be an either or situation where I had to choose between the music or officership. Um, until having seen those people, the the names that come to mind, of course, are Colonel Ray Edmund Allen, as he uh, certainly during my time in the editorial office, he was in at least once a week in his consulting role, and to spend time with him, hearing his life experiences, and uh, Colonel Trevor Davis was doing a very similar thing towards the end of my time there, coming in as a consultant. editorial things you look at their lives and you think yes they'll have had real challenges along the way but what a wonderful life of ministry and the ability to do both and so it was one evening that um, I was kind of processing all this stuff in my mind and observing a few things I don't know whether I call it my caving in moment but it was the moment where I said to God okay I get this Uh, yeah let's get on with it I, I understand what you're asking of me now And so there was a hard journey Where there were times in conversations Where I was reminded that There won't be a music focus It is all about um, In fact the the likelihood is That I could end up in core officership for life And might not have much to do with music at all And so I had to come to terms with that reality uh, But of course when you get to a core You discover that you're going to be involved in the music somehow anyway because you might be appointed to a call with no music and you're it. Or I could be in the situation where I am now, which is enormously privileged to be at London Citadel, where we have a fabulous band and songsters and youth music programme. And I get to participate and cheer them on as the core leader alongside Heather and uh, encourage people to do their thing. And it's fabulous. So it was 2008 that I made my exit from Music Editorial and headed for William Booth College.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I guess a difficult decision, many would find that an enviable Mm. position to be in the staff band working in editorial. Was it a difficult decision to make? Or was it, once you knew, something really easy to hand your life over to God?
1: I would say both, because it was a difficult decision initially, because I knew that I didn't want to give up the music thing. I had in my mind that uh, certainly at some point along the way I would have the privilege of being a core bandmaster. Um, Perhaps one day sometime in the future I would, whether it's in the UK or relocating elsewhere, have an opportunity to progress in the department and maybe even one day um, be a music secretary somewhere who knows? I'd got all these things in my mind that these were my plans. Um, And so to put that to one side and face the reality of what God had called me to, that was hard. But actually, once I got over the initial, yes, let's do it. uh, Not to say there hasn't been challenges ever since where I thought, oh, it'd be so nice to go back to that. (laughs) Because we all have those days when uh, we look back. Um, But I would say in reality that having gone through that initial hard, yes, okay, I realise what I need to do. The journey was not simple, but it was easier because I had the trust that God's got something in store. I've no idea what it is, but he hasn't failed me yet. So let's find out.
2: Thank you
0: for being so open with that Mm. discussion. I'm sure there might be words that people need to hear. Who knows? Maybe. And... uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your journey in officership? Obviously, you started, as you said, at the training college in South London and you're now halfway
1: around the world in Canada. What's that journey (laughs) looked like for you? Well, to explain the the big transition, uh, I should take you back to the 2004 ISB tour in Hamilton, Ontario. Just before the concert started, some friends of mine who were in training college And came along to the concert and brought one of their session mates. And at one point, one of them said, We need to introduce you to Heather. She's a lovely young lady. You will get on well. Anyway, long story short, uh, we started emailing back and forth. And uh, 2008, Heather and I got married. And Heather was commissioned that year, 2004, in Canada. Uh, So when I started at the training college in 2008... Um, Heather was moved to Upper Norwood Corps as the associate officer there for two years while I was at training college which meant that we were able to live on site at the college which was good. So my journey then took me through those two years of college and then 2010 as I was commissioned we together were appointed to Thurso on the far north coast of Scotland where it was a Beautiful town way on the north coast. Our core building was quite literally on the beach, which was all good until it came to a good old North Sea stormy day, and then we felt every bit of that. <laughs> it was quite the experience. We enjoyed three years there, and as uh, we were coming to the end of our three years, there was the uh, conversation about which territory we had to belong to as part of our journey through me going to training college and Heather being Canadian. And so after lots of contemplation and prayer and discussion, we made the decision that together we belong to the Canada and Bermuda Territory. So as we came to the end of our time at Thurso, that's when we got the memo to say you know, being called back home to Canada. And uh, so we were then appointed to Cambridge Citadel in Ontario. Neither of us knew very much about Cambridge, but we were sent there and enjoyed five wonderful years there until, as is the usual process, you've done your number of years and the jigsaw puzzle gets rearranged and somebody at uh, DHQ decides we've got this gap that needs to be filled. So then in 2018, Heather and I were appointed to London Citadel in Ontario and we're just starting year six now and having a fabulous time there with wonderful people it's a real privilege
0: fantastic and that's so great to hear about that journey and perhaps cyclically now (laughs) uh, you mentioned earlier playing with the canadian staff band as well and uh, is that nice to be involved and playing
1: again it really is Yes, it's not a privilege that I take lightly by any means, because uh, we're aware that typically core officers are not allowed to be in a staff section because of the time commitment. But there were a couple of times while we were at Cambridge where somebody was off sick or whatever, so I ended up being the dep who would step into the percussion section and uh, fill in the gap for somebody being away, and that was always fun to do, and uh, that. Continued while I was in London, because one of the great things at London is that our core bandmaster also happens to be the staff bandmaster, and so part of that journey of becoming a member of the Canadian staff band, it's supposed to be for a short time as uh, things were reestablished post COVID and things were returned, um, but it it's become a real meaningful thing for me this ministry, where whilst i don't enjoy being away from the core at any time um the music ministry through the csb is a very special and significant one uh, because on one hand it's a great ministry that i can offer and be part of a fabulous group of people uh, and on the other hand for me personally it's also one of those things that fills my tank and so uh wednesday night Uh, on the 401 in John's truck and stopping at Tim Hortons on the way and uh, being disappointed that they never have what you're asking for. That's all part of the legend of Wednesday night, but just that fellowship of being with people, it's fabulous.
0: Fantastic. That's great to hear. Now, what may not be as great for you to hear is that we're now going to progress into the quirky quickfire questions. So if you weren't nervous before, now's the time. (laughs) So we'll start off with a couple of fairly normal ones Who is your favourite Salvation Army composer?
1: Oh, that's a hard question At the moment I would have to say it's Major Les Condon
0: And to be even more specific, have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece?
1: Yes, Matthew, uh, I would say that it's Song of the Eternal at the moment
0: Have you ever had a nickname that isn't Nick your name?
1: Excellent question There are probably many that other people have had that I didn't know about and probably not very positive ones but I don't know.
0: (laughs) If you could erase one carol from the history of humanity uh, which would it be?
1: The Little Drummer Boy. No question about that.
0: There's a nickname for you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What is your favourite
0: variety of houseplant?
1: Something that doesn't take much maintenance. Whatever it might be, because I'm likely to let it die.
0: (laughs) Perhaps a cactus. Yes. (laughs) Uh,
1: Have you got a signature
0: bake? Ginger cake. Very nice. Who do you think would win in a fencing match, Debussy or Ravel? Debussy. OK. And finally, if you had to lead a Sunday morning meeting in sporting regalia, which sports attire
1: would you choose? Probably a baseball shirt. I've no idea why, but I have one, so I'll wear it. Nice. Excellent. (laughs) And practical. So that takes us on to Band
0: Manager. For those that haven't listened to Fully Scored before each guest that we've had on this season we're asking to choose two players to nominate for a fantasy band that we have and the seats are filling up nicely so there's a few left for you to pick from and you can choose players that have inspired you personally or just people that you look up to as musicians or Christians. So Nick, who would your two nominations be for the Fully Scored Band Manager Band 2023?
1: Now I kind of feel like I'm in a bit of a quandary with this, and I'm glad you've asked me for two, Matthew. Uh, While I don't like the pressure of picking these people, I'm aware that I probably need to be fair and pick a British person and a Canadian person just to keep both sides relatively happy as best I can. And so I'm going to pick one of the second cornet chairs because um, Nigel Hill's ...in the International Staff Band, a friend of mine. He is one of those people who shows up, gets the job done excellently... ...and is a great guy who cares for the people in the band as well. But he's also probably one of the most faithful and longest-serving second cornet players I know. So I can't go wrong with Nigel. I'm also going to take the second trombone seat... And I would nominate my good friend, staff bandmaster John Lamb for that seat. John is actually an excellent bass trombone player, but that spot's already taken. And so uh, he plays a fair second trombone as well. He's pretty good. Brilliant. Two excellent picks there in addition to the band.
0: Well, thank you, Nick. We'll see you shortly again for the Bandmastermind segment of the podcast. Thank you so much, Nick what you had to share with us and for giving up your time to do so. As always, terrific choices for the Band Manager 2023 band. We'll add them to the team sheet shortly. Thank you to everyone who voted and gave nominations to the Euphonium 2 seat in the fantasy band that was up on Facebook. Counting up the nominations and votes, we're pleased to award the seat to Stephen Pavey, a member of the Canadian Staff Band Euphonium Section for over 25 years. Now, gladiators, are you ready? It's time to battle, but not that kind of battle. Bill's Battles was recently recorded on the ISB's most recent CD, Manuscripts 2. Before its recording, it was a piece known to very few. Here is William Himes to share some insights into its composition and the message. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored once again. And it's nice to be talking to you in person in Peterborough. It's good to be here. Yeah, jet lag is all past, so I'll try to be alert for you. <laughs> Fantastic. If you do fall asleep, I'll give you a few prods. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> in fact, for listeners that might not have caught what you're doing, this will go out after you're back, I would imagine. Do you want to give a little synopsis of what you've been up to this week?
2: Well, I'm, I was here at the invitation of the uh, Andrew Blythe and the Peterborough Corps... And in anticipation of a festival weekend, a festival evening, we're doing and Sunday meeting this Saturday and Sunday, uh, with the Kettering band and the Peterborough band. So I'm going to both of those core band practices to prepare them for the second half of the program, where we're doing a few of my pieces as a mass band kind of thing, and then the Sunday service I'll be speaking there and uh, doing some more uh, of my music. Uh, and then uh, so leading up to that there have been some other opportunities just to meet with uh, other uh, brass musicians um, many of them salvationists it's been busy but really very easy to do you know and thank you for squeezing this in as
0: well in the little time that you've had Uh, so in today's episode we're going to be looking at uh, one of your pieces perhaps not that well known of your pieces Battles, a tone poem, which has recently been recorded by the International Staff Band on manuscripts
2: too so when did you come to write this piece? Well Battles is one of those pieces that you write just for you by, by that I mean you don't care if it's ever played, it's just something you wanted to say, it's kind of like a personal diary if you will, you, you do it but it's not like you're intending somebody's going to publish it as a book it's just your, your personal feelings at the time. This is a young man's work. This work is more than 50 years old. It was written when I was um, 22, 23, right around there. I was a university student at the University of Michigan. By now, I'm pursuing my uh, master's degree, and uh, part of that was to uh, do a performance recital of at least an hour. Uh, which a lot of it, you're playing other people's works. And I was a euphonium player, so I did a lot of solo with piano. And uh, But I also, by that time, I decided to minor in composition. Just to, uh, by minoring, that meant I got a private lesson every week. I never really studied composition. I, uh, composition was a hobby of mine. It's something I, I just started thinking about from the time I was about 12 years old, trying to figure out how to notate things, how to write them down, how to... How to make the kind of sounds that I was already enjoying playing in my youth band and later on the senior band and um, so uh, it's something I never really pursued as a career I'm a music educator my degrees are in music education and teaching and that's really uh, what I did but but uh, writing was just something I discovered I could do so therefore I should So now you you flash forward to this fifth year of university. I'm working on a master's degree, got this recital coming, taking some lessons in composition, and um, I wanted to uh, write this piece. It really is a little different than um, something like I would compare it to the present age, not in sound or style, but in content, in that the present age uh, deals with a young idealistic Person who's trying to decide faith, and then, then as Leslie Condon uh, portrays, he he comes to this point of "I'll follow thee of life, the giver." But uh, the first part is all the isms of the world that are attacking him and trying to um, smash his Christian idealism and stuff. But he persists, and then you hear "Courage, brother!" at the end, and you march on, and and that's sort of the end of the story. I sort of pick up where that. That tone poem ended in the sense that I start with uh, the first point of battles is where the person has already decided to follow the Lord, and that's where you hear hints of I surrender all. I'm writing this in a little different idiom because when you're in composition school you're learning all kinds of techniques and uh, although it had been around a while, I delved into what we call serial composition which was uh, pioneered by the likes of Schoenberg and Webern and uh, other uh, 20th century German composers. for the listeners who might not understand what that is I should just say that 12-tone writing is is kind of math in a way because what you do is you have 12 notes in the chromatic scale and what Schoenberg espoused to try to avoid any sense of traditional tonality is you really weren't allowed to if you'd picked one of those notes out you couldn't use it till you'd used all the other 11 remaining notes and but they didn't come in order it didn't sound like a chromatic scale so there's this note and then that it could be any number of notes or you could choose a formula you could base it on your phone number if you wanted to but you, but the point being is that it, it's an enforced angularity because every note is different until you get all 12 in there and so um, having studied that I thought well, I'd like to try that that technique in here so you get a very angular melody but because I'm really rooted in more traditional music it's actually a fairly tonal piece but it does it meets the prescription of the, this formula that Schoenberg espoused so you hear at the beginning a very angular kind of um, tune you're not going to hum it before you go to bed at night or it's not going to stick in your head like that but, it, but for me it was a motif and, and what it is, is uh, this young Christian uh, is, has already decided that he's, he's a Christ follower. And you hear hints, and then uh, finally the actual chorus of, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And then the first battle comes, like the present age, where now these isms are going to attack this, and what do you, you know, what do you believe here? Or, Why do you believe that? You know, that kind of thing. And then you hear um, a refrain of a, an old uh, prayer chorus that says, Touch me again, Lord, this moment I feel that afresh thou canst heal. This guy hasn't wavered off the way. He hasn't lost his faith. He hasn't been shattered by these isms. But he's been shaken up a bit because it's he's, he's really had to help him determine what really, what do I really believe in here, you know, that kind of thing. And But he comes through that initial test uh More or less with this resolve of, touch me again, I'm going to keep following you. The second battle is one that's uh, a little more, um, or I should say, uh, rarely addressed. And and, uh, this is reflective of my experience too. And I'll just digress a minute to say that I'm a child of Salvation Army officers, the oldest of six children. And um, we had a very great experience as officers' kids. We had a very stable upbringing. My parents were in four corps in 22 years. So, five, 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 and seven years in these appointments. So, growing up, it was not a big deal of... There are people who work for IBM that move more often than that. So, I can't... That's, I don't see officership for me as a cross to bear. It was a positive experience. My parents always treated it like it was an adventure. It was like, here's what we get to do next. It wasn't like, oh, I can't believe they did this to us. You know, that kind of, There was never that kind of resentment. It was always the spirit of... Of adventure so my experience in the Salvation Army as a I would be a third generation Salvationist was, has been a very positive one but I thought of I thought of Abraham and Isaac in the Old Testament you remember where God tested him and he said I, I, now he had given him the son that he had promised there's just one little hitch God has asked him to sacrifice his son as an offering, and Abraham must have been totally torn up by this. But he knew he was going to follow whatever the Lord told him. So he takes Isaac out into the wilderness, and Isaac's even saying, "Where's the lamb? Oh, God will provide the sacrifice." You know, he can't quite tell him, "Guess what? Guess who the lamb is?" Kind of thing. So there. They're out in this wilderness, and you know the story, uh, you know, as, as he's ready to prepare the sacrifice, God intervenes and provides a ram in the thicket to substitute for Isaac. Why did God put Abraham through all that? You know, you wonder, is he just a sadist? What is this, you know? But what it is, is I think God wanted to teach Abraham something about himself that he did not know until then. And what he learned about himself was he followed God so fully that even if he had to give up his son he would and God says okay now you know that about you don't worry about your son he'll be fine but you needed to know that about yourself flash forward to my experience I have a wife and two children. My wife and I are as far away from my kids geographically as you can be. We are in Sydney, Australia. They are in Petoskey, Michigan, a little town in Michigan. And we get the word in Sydney, Australia that my daughter has fallen off of playground equipment and severely broken her arm in a really bad place. We're as far geographically away as you can be. So my wife flies. She travels 55 hours finally before she's actually back up in Michigan to find my daughter in a hospital room with her arm with pins through it, suspended above her body, you know, to keep it in place. How do you explain to this five-year-old what life has just dealt you here? So that means she's got to go through CAS, then ultimately physical therapy. And, uh, and then she had to have a second operation to correct uh, an angularity because as a young child that, that could grow wrong, and so they had to do a surgery. Here's my point, is that after all this was done and uh, a year or so later, my wife is talking to my daughter and said, you've learned something about yourself here. You have character because you got through this. You did everything they told you to do and now she's fine to this day. Her arm is great. But did what was the purpose of this? Well, I think bad things happen to good people. I don't think God does that to, to play a game with us. But what does God does do is give us the strength to get through it and we discover something in ourselves that we didn't know otherwise. And like Abraham of old, as a grad student who was happy to grow up in the Salvation Army, and positive in the experience of it. God said to me one time, in a way, you know, we're happy when people come from other churches and discover the vibrant ministry of the Salvation Army and they join us, but what if I called you to do something else? Yeah, you've had a good time here, but what if I needed you in some other field of ministry? Would you be willing to give up this that you know and follow me? And that was something I really hadn't thought of before and I came to the conclusion, like Abraham, if you wanted me to do that, I would have to do that. That's a very long explanation for the second part of Battles, but this second part of Battles is now where this young Salvationist is facing the Salvation Army with its norms, its uniforms, its expectations, and he's a vibrant Christian, but he's trying to decide how much of my identity do i need to give up to fit into this prescribed mold of what we view as an ideal salvationist kind of thing and he's fighting that it's like no god wants me to be who i am it might not always be what you expect of me you know and 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 even as a young musician you know i've written some music that some people might raise their eyebrows at you know i remember when i did so glad you know this jazz flugel solo is it really is that something you know some some eyebrows were raised when i I wasn't trying to be outrageous i'm just saying that tune those words i'm so glad that jesus loves me are happy and upbeat and if you treated it in a jazz style i think it would even enhance the energy. i wasn't trying to make up a point other than that it's just like we can use all idioms to praise the lord and it doesn't have to be a a, a strophic hymn tune always. We can, we can do other styles, other idioms. There's nothing that's sacrosanct as religious or, or non-religious, that kind of thing. themes. And I've always been amused as a salvationist that I think we're the only church, the only denomination that writes songs about ourselves. They actually say the Salvation Army is marching along or Salvation Army, Army of God. And I'm not ashamed of that, but I just think it's kind of unique. You never hear someone singing, I'm a happy Presbyterian. You know, it's (laughs) nothing like that. Uh, They just, they just sing about God and leave it at that we sing we about ourselves, you know, so you hear these little refrains uh, of uh, Salvation Army reference coming through, representing uh, his struggle with his personal identity as verse, versus the organizational identity. So that's really the, the second battle, which I think is unique as far as the subject uh, to encounter. But then it finishes up with uh, the tune, the hymn tune, Aurelia, which we have associated many different texts in the, the Salvation Army. One that comes to mind is, "Oh Jesus, I've promised to serve Thee to the end." But the text I was referencing there was actually uh, from other churches. I know, especially Baptist hymnals, have this in their hymnal, but there there are other hymnals as well that would say, uh, "The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord." Uh, she is his new creation by water and the word. Uh, those are just the first two lines that I can recall. But the point being is that that's what this guy concludes at the end. My main thing is I'm going to serve God wherever that takes me. The church's one foundation is not William Booth. It's not the Salvation Army. It's not Charles Wesley. It's not. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. So wherever he wants me to go, I have to go there. My loyalty is there. And if it's in the Salvation Army, hallelujah, I'll do that. And and for me, that was resolved. You know, It was like Abraham and Isaac. Once I knew that about myself, I knew that if I was called elsewhere, I'd be willing to go. God says, okay, you know that about yourself. Now continue doing what you're doing. And so that's why uh, that hymn tune is referenced there. And at the end, you the final phrase you hear is actually... Um, in, in, interplayed with Aurelia, that tune, you also hear, I will follow thee, my savior. And, and the last phrase is, by thy grace, I will follow thee. And that's how the battle ends. It's not a big victory, hurrah, big fanfare, or anything like that, it's just resolved. Now I know. Now I know this about myself. Uh, to quote my wife, you have character.
0: Would you say that the work is very much a self-portrait about your own journey at that time, or is it more of a third-person
2: analysis of these Christian truths that we all face? No, I think it is very deeply personal and biographic, and having said that, because I'm a normal human being like anyone else, I think, therefore, other people can perhaps relate to it. But it was, it was very personal, hence the, the, the fact that I really didn't care if it was performed or not. It was just something I needed to say. And another question. Clearly anyone that
0: knows your works will know that this is a piece of yours. It's got many of the hallmarks, I guess, even from an early age. But yeah, it's a very, very different language to anything that we have seen since. Would, do you think that is a fair analysis or do you think that that is not
2: quite right? No, I think that's fair, and I think part of it is the environment that I was in at the time, which is the university environment, which is very heady and intellectual, and and you're also, um, many different techniques are revealed to you. You're exposed to a lot of different styles and ideas, and and in the large ensembles I played in, and I played in a world-class wind band, the University of Michigan Symphony Band, played all over the world and uh, we played in Carnegie Hall on at least two occasions in my four years there. So it was a wonderful group of, of people that, that played at a very high level and they played some very intellectual pieces of music, the likes of Hindemith and that sort of thing. And we'd, we'd also play highlights from Carousel, you know, we'd play things, that or Azusa March, we'd play things that would touch the audience as well, but we'd also educate. So it's a very heady atmosphere and you're growing intellectually at such a rate because you're on your own now, you're not under your parents' wing, you, you, you can think of all these different things, you can take all these different classes and things, so your mind is just a word at, at all the possibilities. And it's just where I, where I was at that point in time, and, uh, and you study a little bit about the serial composers such as Webern, and, um, and you think, okay, I, I'd like to try something like that. Now I, I don't have pieces since then that that would replicate this or you'd say, oh yeah that's that's a lot like battles but there are uh, several pieces that do have that kind of moments of angularity that I'm familiar with for example, uh, I wrote a euphonium solo a few years later called Journey into Peace," and it starts with the soloist all by himself for like the first nine ten bars and it's it's not twelve tone, but it's definitely eight tone it's not going to be a hymn tune or anything like that, but it reflects this kind of searching motif. You're trying to find sense of life or whatever. So, yeah, I would say Battles is uniquely me at that point in time. It's a snapshot of a university student who's seeking and finding. And then other pieces after that, it's kind of like, well, this is who I am. Deal with it. You know, this is, this is just my language. And it uh, and, and becomes a, um, a little more, I don't know, approachable or accessible to the average person.
0: And with your latter writing being, as you described, much more approachable perhaps mm. to listeners, do you think there's still scope in Salvation Army music for more academic, serious and boundary-pushing works,
2: such as battles in today's um, Salvation Army repertoire? Do you think there is still a place? Oh, I think so. I think so. We just have to be uh, really conscious of the audience we're playing to. And um, and this is the thing that I learned, actually not in the Army, but at the university where I was studying, because, as I say, intellectually we're growing by leaps and bounds, and we're playing all this very sophisticated music, and then when the conductor pulls out highlights from Carousel, he could just sort of sense our effete snobbery because of all the stuff we know, We just know enough to be dangerous, you know. And he stopped us one time in rehearsal. He says, you know, I sense your attitude here. He says, but here's something I've discovered in my 35 years of conducting this ensemble. I cannot play to empty seats. Now, we will educate this audience. We will take them to new realms or areas that they have yet to discover. But we must meet them where they are. We must play something that they can connect with, and then we can take them on this journey. And that is a philosophy I've applied to when I was teaching in the classroom instrumental music, certainly the 38 years I had the Chicago Staff Band. We could play some of the latest, most sophisticated works, but there would always be something there for what Eric Leidson referred to as the little old lady in the third row. And that's not really an ageist thing. What he means is, The average person who comes into our hall to hear our music should be able to understand some of what we do. We shouldn't be in code here. We shouldn't be that subtle. And uh, I think we can take people on a journey with something like battles, but I wouldn't program five battles on a program. It's rather like a meal. You're, You're gonna balance things out with the appetizer and the soup and the main course and that kind of thing and uh, concert programming, I think, or festival programming is is the same. And you must have something for people that they can relate to. And uh, I would say, at, back to my university experience, the conductor was very successful in that regard. We played some very sophisticated music, but we always ended with a Sousa march, and it ended up never being a Sousa march. They wanted two more after that, because we were playing things to them too. and. If our mission in Salvation Army Music is to have a message, that surely must be our objective, is to connect with the audience and then educate them. Fantastic. Well, Bill, thank you so much for
0: giving up your time in this busy UK tour, mini tour that you're having over here to talk about a fascinating piece that I think gives us an insight into your writing, but also into your life.
2: And thank you for sharing that story with us. My pleasure. Thank you for helping me uh, rediscover my youth.
0: Thank you, Bill, for finding time to speak with us and for uncovering the additional layers included in your terrific composition. Now, drier than an unbuttered crumpet, it's Arid Island. On this month's fully scored expedition to the island, we found staff solster leader Matt Woods washed up ashore. Naturally, we thought it a good time to find out a bit more about him and which one album he'd chosen to pack on his ill-fated voyage.
2: Land
0: ho! Welcome to Arid Island. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Arid Island. How is the temperate weather treating you?
3: Oh, it's it's, it's special. Yes, it's yeah, you know. As the uh, title suggests, it is quite dry. But, you know,
0: hopefully the water's wet. Or even treat yourself and crack open a bottle of Schler. You never oh, know. Oh, yeah.
3: Schler. <laughs> I haven't had that for a long time. I had that at my wedding. Can't get that over here, unfortunately. It's not one of the uh, things. It's normally Martinelli's is the drink of choice at Christmas for Salvationists in uh, in, in the States.
0: <laughs> a little bit of culture. Learning already, which is great. <laughs> so you've recently moved across territories from the west to the central territory can you tell us a little bit about that move and what you're now doing in the usa central territory please
3: yeah so uh myself and my family we moved over to uh, the chicago area in june which seems like it was a long time ago now but um, it really wasn't and yeah lots of stuff has happened um so, so we were in based in the los angeles area before and i worked at thq in the music department there um, just an opportunity arose and I applied for it and got the job so you know here I am so I'm I'm now the uh, director of vocal music for the central territory which um, I think it's the first one around that's kind of like specific to vocal music um, certainly in the US Um, so it's kind of exciting Um, so one of my responsibilities is to encourage vocal music in the territory and kind of help resource people be a point of contact for uh, helping any issues that people may have, you know, on all all ages of music and not just choirs as well. Um, choral music, yes, that's a big and essential part of it, but also, you know, people that sing in praise teams and um, people that just, you know, maybe community groups or, you know, just anything to do with singing, really. So if I can be helpful there, that's good. Um, another part of the job is to lead the Central Territory Staff Songsters. Harold started that group off um, in 2020. That's Harold Bergmeier. Um, they started right in the midst of covid but i've had a rehearsal weekend with them um and that went well um they kept me around so at least i've got another weekend uh, coming up in november and then i get to help lead the youth chorus as well and that day we've got a meeting in april but yeah it's kind of a new job so it's kind of you know discovering what that exactly is going to look like for the territory and for me and all that kind of stuff but yeah so that's kind of a little bit about that
0: very exciting. We wish you all the best as you venture forward and uh, put your stamp on that role and those uh, opportunities that you're going to be having with all the people that you come into contact with. Thank you. Now, astute listeners may notice that your accent isn't that native to where you said you'd moved from California. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're speaking so funny?
3: Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I know it's got a funny accent. You know people keep you know, looking at me strange when I ask for a glass of water when I go to a restaurant around here. But, yeah, um, I'm originally from, uh, from Portsmouth. Um, went to Portsmouth Citadel as a young, younger man. Actually, started off going to South Corps but my parents moved when I was about, uh, probably about 11. So, yeah, I'm originally from from around there, and I moved over to the U.S. Um, in 2006. Yeah, it's been fun, you know, it's a different way of life. Never, I would never have seen myself uh, as a younger guy moving to Chicago or anything like that. Um, it's, you know this, this is not my doing at all. this is uh, God's hand on my life for sure, and you know where he wants me to be. so well,
0: that brings us on to the all important question. If you were left deserted on an arid island and could take one album with you, what album would it be and why?
3: well this is this is quite a tricky uh, question. I'm sure everyone struggled a little bit you know to try and narrow down. Uh, life's listening of music and thing, into one thing. I feel like even the best albums, you probably at some point you'll get annoyed with, but because of the big move, I recently um, downsized my CD collection, because to be honest, I hardly played any of them. So I kind of had to think of what CDs did I actually keep? That was kind of helped me kind of narrow it down. I used to go to the national uh, band contest quite a lot when I was younger with my dad, uh, we'd, we'd go every year. And I think it was 1997, Lee Edge was the test piece, and uh, that night in the concert it was the first time there was this guy from Australia that they said played all these instruments. Growing up as a lad, you know, like you know, you play the cornet, you don't touch anything else. You know, don't go and play a euphonium. Stay playing your cornet, or you're going to mess your lip up. And there's this guy who picks up a trombone, plays a trumpet, James Morrison, and I just was my mind was blown. And I think it was it was the first time that he'd done something in the brass band world in the, in the UK, I think. And so it was with Black Dyke the ISB and James Morrison. And yeah, it was a great album. I, I listened to that a lot. Um, just the, you know, and the memories of that, uh, you know, I think it was Sweet Georgia Brown that James played and Old Rugged Cross with the ISB. And just, you know, his virtuosity on those both of those instruments was, um, yeah, unbelievable. And then they finished off the evening with Elsa's, um, you know, mass bands. And I think probably the organ came in. It might've been a little pitchy. But uh, the band saw the organ, I'm not sure which one around, but it was just you know, a thrilling um, a concert to be at. I think it was, I think everyone left there with their jaws on the floor when they just heard that guy play. So that, like listening to that CD, that was a great one. Um, Grimethorpe had a, with, were kind of popular, it's a brand the same, about the same time. They, I think it was Brastoff had come out and thought it was a great film. You know, it's great seeing guys going around the town with their tubers on their, you know, their bicycles, you know, that happens all the time. But yeah, there was another CD that they'd released through Shandos, and it was like their concert CD. I think it was just called Grimethorpe. Um, but that had some great, great pieces on it. You know, it had Death or Glory, and the Orange Juice. That was also on there, but then I had like ken downey 's Purcell variations, River dance was on there, that was right river dance that was and that was a great arrangement as well um, that's fun, so much of fun to listen to, but I think my music choices have kind of as most people have kind of changed over the years. I would be happy with either of those two, but I think I was this kind of just came to me this morning um, and this is, i I do have this on c d because uh, I, I do tend to still like having them because i 'm that old. Um, but i mostly listen to this on uh, streaming but it's the max richter recomposed um, where he's done uh, re-looked at uh, some classics so this this one is basically on um, the four four seasons and it's just a, a very emotional journey through that um, something you're very familiar with it feels like you're putting on a nice pair of you know old slippers but it's something new and wondrous about it and if, if no one's listened to it I'd really recommend just listening to it it's not super long you're listening to that um that suite the vivaldi um but it's just stunning the way he's kind of brought in some of this more electronic music and just kind of the new flavour it kind of brings it just comes up really fresh um you just wonder if vivaldi would have written it like that if he'd be done it now but um yeah it's it, it's pretty cool so I think I'm going to go with, for that reason, especially because I'm, you know, to go with the changing seasons on the Arid Island, if I'm going to be there a long time, I'm going to go with Max Richter Recomposed, The Four Seasons.
0: Brilliant. And yes, you will see all four seasons whilst on the island, so that is great. (laughs) Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing that insight and your reasoning behind those great album choices that you've mentioned there. And thank you so much for giving up your time to join us on Fully Scored.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Matt, for your time. We'll be back next month to pick you up from the island. There aren't many places in the world hotter, drier and sweatier than Arid Island, but most certainly the Bandmastermind Hot Seat is one of them, which is where Nick finds himself now. Well, Nick, welcome back and uh, welcome to the Bandmaster Mind Hot Seat. Thank you, Matthew. On a scale of 1 to 10, how uh, nervous are you feeling? Absolutely petrified. Is there <laughs> anyone on the leaderboard that you're trying to beat? or?
1: Um, I think I would like to have a go at beating my bandmaster, John Lamb, on his uh, one-point wonder. But I'm not holding up my hopes at the moment. Well,
0: <laughs> the challenge is set. Let's see how you do. Nicholas Samuel, are you ready to play band mastermind? Let's go. Your time starts now. What was Eric Ball's last composition to be published in Gems for Songsters? Pass. Okay. Can you name Kenneth Downey's 2023 published Waltz Fantasy? Pass. What was the first published piece to include cowbell?
1: L.S.L. Senor?
0: Uh, not uh, not correct, oh. I'm afraid. Uh, where, would, where was Donald Osgood, the bandmaster? Worthing? Close, but not correct, no. I'm afraid. Which Salvation Army composer was born 13 years to the day after Bella Bartok? Pass. OK, we'll come back to the answers at the end. What is the first track on the Enfield Citadel album, Kaleidoscope?
1: Oh, ooh. I got that one in the car. Oh, pass.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who was born first, Eric Ball or William Walton? William Walton. 50-50 but incorrect, I'm afraid. Oh. <laughs> Who was the trombone solo song of exuberance written for? Uh
1: Maisie Wiggins?
0: Not, I'm afraid. Can you name one of the principal cornets of the ISB between David Dawes and Gavin Lamper? Carl Nielsen. Correct. What was the last LP recorded by the ISB under Bernard Adams?
1: The International Staff Band album.
0: It wasn't, I'm afraid. Um, But just enough time to get that answer in. So... I believe that leaves you tied with John Lamb with one point. Well. Not a bad score for Bandmaster Band. band.
1: It could be worse.
0: <laughs> it could be a lot worse, not <laughs> one point worse anyway. <laughs> We've had no one in the negatives yet, uh, but there's still time. <laughs> so let's just go a lot through those answers for those that were playing along at home. The last of Eric Ball's compositions to be published in Gems of Songsters was The Prayer of St Francis. Yeah. The 2023 Waltz Fantasy by Kenneth Downey was Love Lifted Me. Uh, the first piece published to include Cowbell and reliably informed was Mountain Camp by Donald Osgood. Ah, yes. Who was a bandmaster at Southall.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, the Salvation Army composer who was born 13 years to the day after Bella Bartok was Eric Lysden on the 25th of March 1894. Oh. And here's one that you may kick yourself under the table. Uh, the first track of Kaleidoscope is In the Firing Line. Ah, Brad yes. <laughs> and obviously yes, it's a 50-50 chance. Uh, it was Eric Ball that was born about five months before William Walton.
1: Ah.
0: Oh. The trombone solo, Song of Exuberance, was written for Mac Carter. You correctly named Carl Nielsen as one of the principal cornets. You could have had Kevin Ashman or Rob Gill as well. Mm. And the last LP recorded by the ISB under Bernard Adams was Festival Salute. Well, there you go. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored. Thank you for giving up your time and sharing your words and a bit of your story and your faith with us. We really do
1: appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. It's a privilege as always. Thanks for having me.
0: It seems like a while since we've had a sparse discord, so here's a quick reminder of what our most recent excerpt sounded like. And here it is again. That was just the second cornet part of the piece. Even so, it gives me great pleasure to congratulate not one, not two, but three winners who all guessed a piece correctly on the day episode 46 with that first play of the EPSA was released. Here are our medalists. Taking home the bronze medal was Paul Winterbourne submitting his guess at 9.36pm. The silver medal goes to Ian Wilson, coming in at 12.21pm. And gold goes to... Nicholas Brill, correctly guessing the piece at 10.56am. Congratulations also to all those who messaged in and correctly guessed that the piece was indeed Robert Redhead's A Fanfare of Praise. Sparsely Scores will be returning with a new episode for Season 5 in January. Well, I'm afraid that's just about all we have time for in this episode. If you're not already, make sure to follow us on social media to keep up to date with the latest. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, why not click the subscribe button to be notified instantly for new episode releases. Time for a few thanks. Thank you to our splendid guests, Nick, Bill and Matt, for giving up your time to chat and share your thoughts. Much appreciated. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for the technical wizardry in editing this episode seamlessly together. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this podcast on your platform and the associated Greatest Hits playlist alongside it. Thank you to the once-was-lost-but-now-found-band-nerds for searching the deep, cavernous pits of your mind for the Bandmastermind trivia. Of course, that leaves one more grand hurrah of thanks, and it goes to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us today. See you next time for something a little bit festive. Goodbye, and God bless.